You're listening to episode 188 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogel. Well, it's an honor to have Chris Nye back on the podcast for the second time to talk about his newest book on ideology and the church. Uh, I think he points out well early in the conversation that this is a word you hear more often, and I think it's partly because we're dealing with ideologies across the spectrum. You see them in the church as a pastor, but we also spend some time talking specifically about how they creep into our work as pastors in preaching, but also as writers into the books that we're reading. I don't know about you, but I picked up a lot of books lately that seem like they're just exactly what I would expect them to be, a kind of ideological position in written form. And we talk about how, as a writer, you can tackle hard problems and do it from a place of honesty and truth without slipping into the same temptation. A really interesting and helpful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Chris Nye. He's a doctoral student at Duke University's Divinity School and the author of several books, including Distant God and Less of More. For 15 years, he served as a local church pastor, and his writing has appeared in places like The Washington Post and Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, as well as various others. He joins me today to talk about a new book that he has out this summer titled A Captive Mind, Christianity, Ideologies, and Staying Sane in a World Gone Mad. Uh, Chris, it's second time to have you on the podcast. Uh, I, I pointed out, I think, when I invited you on for this one, that uh, our past conversation was one of the most downloaded episodes ever. I think it's in the top five. Wow. So uh, high expectations for today's conversation. <laughs> it's uh, Chase, really good to have you back. Thank you so much. That that shocked me, but it's an honor because I love this podcast. Yeah, well, I know, um, you know, I love to talk books, obviously, but we also like to talk about the writing process of those books. And I know you're yeah. a writer, you care a lot about writing, so I'm, I'm going to definitely get to some of that. Um, but I would love to just start with the new book is really on ideologies. I got a chance to read it and really enjoyed it and found uh, found it really helpful, particularly some of the things we'll get into. Uh, but what got you interested in the idea of ideologies and what is maybe as a starting point, a definition for what an ideology is? I got super interested in ideologies the way I got interested in all my other writing, whether it's like short essays or a book. I'm a pastor and I've been in the local church for 15 years and just, you know, you have these conversations as a pastor that are a little bizarre and they're different because people see you in a different light and they bring up different subjects. And one of the things I started noticing in the last couple years, really since uh, really the pandemic, I think, was this ability our, our people in our church had to grab onto sets of ideas, be uh you know, really infatuated by ideas and the packaging of them, taking them in through the internet usually, and almost just lazily regurgitating those ideas back out into the world. You know, the retweet's the best example of that, but it goes beyond that. I think Instagram is also becoming a place and TikTok where people are kind of grabbing onto sets of ideas or thought leaders, and they're just kind of reposting things out into the world and kind of not understanding that that's formulating them and forming them as a kind of mental person that is not very thoughtful or, you know, not really forming opinions or critically thinking, but actually just kind of regurgitating opinions. So ideologies, I kind of, one, I started to hear that word a ton. I don't know if you feel that way, but I feel like I've heard that word more 
um, than most, uh, yeah, I don't know, just than the years previous. So I kind of started to do some digging on it. And really, the way I define ideologies is they're prepackaged sets of ideas that are formulated by authoritative or unauthoritative popular sources. So you think about like, yeah, in- influencers from Instagram or like uh, philosophers or something like that. And they're sets of ideas. They come in packages. So it's like, if you believe this, then you also believe this, then you also believe this. And what I've found is that people kind of have an entry point into ideologies, grab onto one thing that satisfies their emotional temperament about the world. And then they regurgitate that, like I said, or just kind of like adopt it wholesale and then get it back out into the world. When I was doing digging on this and research on this, there's an entire academic background to this, um, that kind of this word ideology started around the French Revolution, but, uh, it was actually Karl Marx and Engels who, you know, wrote the Communist Manifesto and did a lot of kind of like communist writing. They wrote a book called The German Ideology that really popularized this term. But even secular philosophers like Louis Althusser or Zizek, who's a really popular, um, uh, philosopher right now, they actually critique ideology in the same way that I do, which is to say these are sets of ideas that explain reality, but l- bring us into a posture of lazy thinking and kind of like rote uh, agreement with, like I said, sources that are just kind of popular, whether they're authoritative or not authoritative. I'm concerned as a pastor because I've seen people fall into what I call ideological captivity, where they literally just buy these ideologies through the internet algorithm and then lazily, like I said, put them back out into the world without really thinking about, is that Christian doctrine? <laughs> is that does, is this biblical Christianity? Um, instead, they just go, hmm, this kind of like makes me feel good or yeah, that seems right. And then they just put it back out into the world without thinking. Yeah, as a pastor, I, I sense a lot of that, and you sense the way that people bring their ideology to the text as well. So they they form the idea first, and then they start looking for the support for that ideology within Scripture, uh, usually sort of finding bits and pieces of it along the way. Um, it also does feel like ideology is one of those things that you tend to recognize. Well, you said you hear the word more often. You you hear it because we point out other people's ideologies. You know, we tend to yes. describe other things as ideologies. But I think we're most of us don't possess the skill set to recognize maybe when when we're falling into some of those ideological ideas. Um, one of the things I liked about your book was that you aren't just trying to point a finger at somebody else's ideology. You're trying to get beneath the surface and ask why are all of us finding these ideologies more appealing, and how do we begin to recognize that. That's what's at work sometimes in the way we're consuming media or thinking about the issues of our day. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the one of the ways I've I think you're right. Another reason I wrote the book was I was thinking about my own thinking. Like, how am I taking in information and am I captive to certain ideologies so I, I do think one of the things Christians have to be just aware of is that we live in a like idea obsessed world and an information saturated world. I don't know if you're familiar with the strength finders thing, but sure. uh, one of my high strength finders is input. I love to just take it in. I love to study. I want to study everything. I wish your highest one is like mine. Mine was context. And I was like, how is context a strength? You're like, what is that input as well? You're like, everybody else gets like ideation and leadership. And yeah, we get input and context. You, you and me like to research and read. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I just, you know, I got thinking more and more that Christianity is not on the same plane 
of ideas. Uh, it, it, it itself, as, a, as our faith, is not an idea. Uh, Christianity is the global event, the universal event of the coming of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And all of our faith hinges upon an event where God came, died, and rose again. And we are announcing that event and that message. And when I started to consider that, I started to consider how that might, thinking about the gospel in that way might help us uh, reframe what ideologies are. And it has helped me to not be so obsessed with and con- and like overly anxious about ideal uh, idea battles, you know, because I think that's the other thing Christians get tempted into is like, you know, this idea is a threat to the gospel or, you know, this is a threat to the church. I hear that all the time. Uh, I don't think Jesus Christ is sitting as Lord feeling threatened. <laughs> I think, I think he, he, you know, I love Dallas Willard. He was once asked, you know, can you describe God in one word? He said, relaxed. I think that at some level we spin our wheels over the potential disasters that ideas can bring and they are dangerous and we have to be careful, but we have to remember we don't exist battling on the same plane that ideologies battle. You use a piece of advice that uh, really a warning that Paul gave the Colossians about the way in which they can be taken captive by philosophy and deceit. Uh, I think that's sort of the idea behind the title of the book, A Captive Mind. What is that warning that Paul gives and and how did that become central for you in thinking about the danger, the risk of ideology? A number of scriptures came up. That's another thing, you know, as, as a writer, it's like the scriptures kind of speak first and you let them speak. And a couple of scriptures became super important to this book. And I even warn readers, I'm going to go back to these verses a lot. And one of them, yes, yeah, Colossians 2, 2, 8. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It was that end line that I was kind of getting at in my last answer, which is like, okay, what ideologies are we hearing and how do they quote accord with Christ? You know, you think about that word accord, like how do they, how are they in harmony or disharmony with the gospel? And he gives two categories according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of this world. And I believe that we are going to interact as Christians. And again, it's no alarmist. There's no major threat to this. You know, we're just taking this in as Christians that there will be philosophies that can take our mind captive that are going to be according to human tradition. So that's what an ideology is probably most cleanly is like the assimilation and organization of ideas that are built around philosophy and humanity, right? We're going to be able to, like Paul says, that you might be held captive by that or by the elemental spirits of this world. I truly believe Satan is is at work in ideas, in concepts, in the ways that we think, in philosophies. And that warning that Paul gives is so good because it then comes later right in the verses after. Paul says what is according to Christ, which is the disarmament of powers, that's in verse 15, uh, and in the exaltation of Jesus through his crucifixion. So he doesn't battle the philosophies, quote unquote, of this world with other philosophies. This is also first Corinthians one and two, you know, you go to there and he says, like, it's going to be confusing to Greek philosophers. It is not the quote wisdom or the sophistry of the world. It's going to be the, he says, we preach Christ crucified. It's like, it's, it's kind of foolishness to those that are perishing, 
but to those that are, we, we believe it's the word of life. So I try to think about and help people in the book in more detail. Like, what does it mean for our thinking to be in accord with Christ, in accordance with Christ, the way that Paul uh, talks about it in Colossians 2.8? One of the books that you reference that I think is really helpful in starting to wonder, well, why at this particular moment do we find ourselves so susceptible to being held captive? What is it, as we've said before, that is making this conversation around ideology even more prominent today? Uh, and you reference the book by Philip Reef, uh, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, The, the Rise mm-hmm. of the Psychological Man. And you make the point that we're living in a time where we've really become our emotions, that our emotions are having an increased impact on how we think, what ideologies we might be drawn to. Um, Rife somebody I've been doing my own reading in, and I, I hear popping up. I think a lot of people are being helped by his work. Maybe take a moment to explain how his work's been helpful for you and what it is about our emotions that you think are attached to ideology. Philip Reef was, uh, he was like a Freud scholar, I think, at UPenn. And yeah, his book has been referenced by Tim Keller a lot. Carl Truman put out a book that kind of summarizes these ideas a little bit more on a popular level. Um, and I think he's super helpful. His kind of main argument, as I understand it, is that he says at some point we were kind of a political man. You know, he's using kind of gendered terms or whatever, but um, we were a political man or political humankind, meaning that there is kind of like a sense of importance and the ways that humanity garnered their decision-making was around what was good for the state, what was good for the nation, what was good for my city. Then he says that, you know, kind of the industrial age between 1700s and 1900s, mid 20th century, we became an economic man economic mankind. The decisions that we made were focused around stuff like what made money and how did business grow? You think about kind of the way capitalism informed a lot of decision-making through that time. How could the economy grow and how could our nation uh, become a profitable place? That was a primary concern. If you made money, you were a good person. If you provided for your family, you were a good person. Well, his argument is that since the 1960s, we've kind of like moved into this new era called the psychological man. That what drives us is not politics so much. What's good for the nation? It's no longer economics. What's going to make you rich? Or how are you going to build a profitable society? We're now kind of in this place that's like, my primary identity is the emotional experience of my life. Do I feel good? Uh, does this bring me immediate emotional satisfaction? Or does this world make sense for me therapeutically? Um, so he talks about a lot of the language of um, therapeutics and around, and around therapy about, you know, uh, and, and it's probably, you know, his his thesis is only more and more becoming true as you see um, movements around wellness. So much good thinking, by the way. I don't want to, you know, I'm always careful to like not go all in with Philip Reef here because I think there's things that our grandparents did not have resources and language around their emotional life that if they had them, they probably would have been better people living more richer lives. However, it's kind of overcorrected where we're sitting in a time where as a pastor for, you know, many years I've noticed people really treat God this way, you know? It's like if God is not making sense to their emotional life and at some point isn't providing a sort of therapeutic place in their life like giving them positive emotional feeling or even helping them even if God's not helping them make sense of their 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 emotional life, how they feel, uh, they really struggle with their faith. So 
it's it is something to be aware of that is uh the enemy psychology no is the enemy therapy therapy no uh, these things are helpful but they are tools they're not gods and kind of the way that christians have commented on reef's work is like at some level we have kind of made an idol of our own uh therapeutic thinking yeah it makes sense as a pastor i see it too that uh, obviously if I'm at a moment in my life where I need something, the church is providing it, God's providing it, I see the value. But if at any moment, you know, the lake becomes more therapeutic for me than a Sunday morning church service, well, then the lake's going to win out, win over, right? Yeah. Uh, we're sort of always looking for that thing that is helping us. Um, really helpful. How, how has that, that predisposition towards emotional thinking led or made people susceptible to ideology? Yeah, that's something I try to unpack a little bit in the book. It's a short book, by the way, for those listening. That uh, it's it's not too big. If I had more room or more time or wanted to go deeper on it, I would want want to investigate that question a little bit more. Um, I have hunches and I don't have full conclusions on it, but my my hunch that I bring into the book is that the what we are looking for right now, like I said, with God and with faith, is like how can this piece of information that God has risen from the dead in Jesus, um, how can that help me make sense of the way that I feel about the world? The problem is, you know, when you read the Bible, it's going to make you feel a lot of things. You're going to read the Bible. You're going to feel angry. You're going to feel convicted. You're going to feel enlightened. You're going to feel comforted, uh, a very wide range, a range of emotions, right? And I think with ideologies, what we can do is we can find one that satisfies our emotional temperament about the world. Whether we're a little bit more conservative or a little bit more progressive in our thinking, there's some thing out there that can help us build a sense of identity around our opinions, uh, that we think something and that makes us feel good about our existence in some way. Uh, ideologies can satisfy it and kind of satiate our emotional life. Like, hey, th these ideas make me feel good. Uh, God does not do that because God is not one to be controlled or manipulated the way that, or like organized the way that an ideology can be organized. And so um, if we build our life off of ideas and we build our life off of our opinions and what we think about the world and we don't build it off of our behavior or our repentance or our response to the event of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, uh, then we'll slowly drift away from Christianity. But I think ideologies satisfy that part of us that goes, man, I want to feel this. I want to, you know, explain something. And that's why I think there's a lot of people kind of gravitating towards something like, um, you know, existentialism or absurdism, that just life is kind of meaningless. And there's kind of this absurd nature to life. It's random. It's chaotic. That helps people make sense of the world in their emotional life. And because it satisfies their experience as a, as a person, uh, they'll grab onto that ideology, not realizing that that ideology has many, many holes and flaws and also will one day be completely uh, irrelevant to our great-grandchildren as new ideologies will come in place. One of the things you write about in the book, the way these ideologies can can keep us from thinking or wrestling with truth, pursuing truth, and you use a really helpful uh, point from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who makes a warning about foolishness and the sort of spiritual risk, the risk to truth that foolishness um, in some ways can be can be worse than than intentional sin. Uh, I wanted you to unpack that because I, I thought it was really interesting just how dangerous foolishness can actually be within our lives. 
Chase, when you sent me the questions and you sent me this about Bonhoeffer, I was like, this is why I like this podcast, because he's going to ask me about Bonhoeffer. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the bells. I always say there's a Eugene Peterson bell that rings if we can make that one. And then there's usually a Bonhoeffer bell, too. So, yeah, click the, click the, the or ring the bell. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll work towards the Peterson stuff. That's not too <laughs> hard for me either. Bonhoeffer wrote this um, amazing essay. He didn't really finish it. And it's in Letters and Papers from prison. If those of you that are interested in his life, Bonhoeffer was a mid 20th century pastor and spy who was fighting against the Nazi regime. His collected papers while he was in prison as a, as a war criminal um, under the Nazi regime in Germany, he wrote this essay called After 10 Years. He's kind of reflecting on 10 years under Hitler. So um, even some of the years where Hitler was bringing a lot of economic prosperity, he was just reflecting on 10 years under this madman who has now, you know, at this point he was writing it, it was like 1944, 43. And he was kind of thinking about all the ways that like, how did we get here? You know, and this this was massively helpful. And a huge reason I was like, I got to write this book was Bonhoeffer argues that he has seen more evil maybe than most human beings. You know, he's sitting in a Nazi prison camp. Okay. You can't imagine probably the violence that he saw in those spaces. Um, Charles Marsh has a remarkable biography of Bonhoeffer called A Strange Glory, gives us kind of insights into his prison life a little bit, but he probably saw some horrific things. He heard horrific rhetoric through the Nazi propaganda machine while he was living in Germany. His main argument was evil is bad. Evil by definition is terrible. But he thinks that something worse than evil is foolishness, is idiots, people who kind of adopt like the Nazi ideology. Because he said at some level, evil can be stopped through those that wisely and uh, live wisely and live responsibly. He says things in that essay like men um, who become deprived of their independent judgment are destined to lead uh, a political disaster. So it's not so much the evil person in charge, Hitler, it's the fools who follow Hitler. It's the thousands upon thousands of, you know, he used really strong terms, idiots, fools, uh, you know, you know, uh, people without any kind of critical thinking. And he says at some point he started talking with people in Germany and he says, uh, that at some level he started to see people that were non-representative of brains. He says, uh, one feels, here's a good quote from him. One feels when talking to a a fool, uh, when talking to him, they're no longer dealing with the man himself, but with slogans, catch words and the like, which have taken hold of him. He is under a spell. When I read that, I thought, I feel that way sometimes as a pastor, that when I'm talking with people, I'm talking with catchphrases. I'm talking with people who sound like the internet. They sound like the algorithm they come from. And I can almost, you know, guarantee after I hear a few of their opinions, I know where they stand on all the other issues because they've adopted an ideology. He says, men become passive instruments. This is another quote from him, capable of any evil and at the same time, incapable of seeing that it is evil. And that's why he argues at the end of the day, he believes like a fool is worse than a villain. And that's one of the chapters I explore in that idea in my book. I've had that same experience sometimes, you know, we'll have dinner with people or talk with people and 
afterwards, my wife and I will say, I know exactly what blogs and podcasts that they consume based wow. on that conversation we had. Yeah. Cause you, you, it is, it's, it's so obvious. And I, I think what you we're piecing together, what you do so well in the book, but also in this conversation is, um, we, because of these ideologies, these sort of sets of ideas, we actually stop pursuing what is true and we start consuming them simply because they make us feel a certain way. Uh, and I think you're right. I think that, that, that pattern of behavior of I'm no longer pursuing what is true, what is good, but I'm pursuing what makes me feel a certain way can become really, really dangerous to ourselves, but also more broadly. Uh, one of the things I liked about your book is, is you diagnose the situation, but you also go on to give some recommendations. Um, and I think it's helpful to say that these ideologies are not a switch, right? It's not as simple as I can just yeah. turn off my predisposition towards ideology or towards ideology. Um, that it really takes work, and and there's because they're ideas, we're always interacting with them to some degree, and sometimes there are ideas within these ideologies that are right. Um, I wanted to go through a few of those things that you recommend for sort of breaking the spell, to use that language you just did as well. Um, what is the place of books and reading in that process? One of the things I realize as a pastor is we have uh, the privilege of of reading at a kind of regular level. I think every great pastor and great leader reads, but that our people, one, we can't expect them to read the same level and they, they shouldn't. One of the reasons we are in their lives is to like study second Corinthians two more than they will and help them understand it. That That's part of our job. However, I am, I am concerned that my people and the churches I've served in are listening to podcasts and engaging with YouTube um, that might be the highest level of critical thinking for someone. And the rest is like blogs, reels on Instagram, TikTok videos, and tweets. And the massive amount of their information intake is coming from a medium that does not uh, warrant or provide sustained thinking. Tim Keller had this great quote in this interview he he gave a while back where he just said, you know, the internet the way we read online, it, it doesn't help us follow a sustained argument or like a longer narrative. And our brains actually need that to be able to like follow an argument for 300 pages instead of following an argument for like 13 tweets on a thread. We actually need the ability to like spend time with an argument for a long time. So I think when we're thinking through ideologies, one of the things that we can do to battle that is read scripture for sure, because scripture does not come from this, you know, planet. There's times you read, I mean, it obviously comes from this, this planet, but it comes from God's mouth and it, it's going to surprise you and shock you and help you kind of like push back on different things that you're seeing and reading. But the other thing is just reading great books that will help you follow an argument over a long time and even engage with like, metaphor, imagination, critical thinking, reading novels. Okay, here's my Peterson reference, right? He was a huge, Peterson was a huge advocate in his biography. Uh, I don't know, I don't, I'm sure you've read it. If you're a huge fan, uh, the biography that was written by Wynn Collier, you know, a burning sure. in my bones, terrific. In, in that biography, Collier talks about how um, he interviews parishioners from his church and um, they would say, you know, they'd be talking to him about some spiritual issue or some, some thing that they're struggling with, with God. And he would ha hand them Dostoevsky. 
you know, he, he would hand them the Bach off. He would hand them novelists, you know, he's a big fan of Russians. So I just mentioned a few, but he would hand them uh, Herman Melville is a huge Moby Dick fan. He would hand them a novel. And I thought, wow, you know, I was really challenged by that one. Would I ever do that? You know, um, but what was he doing there? He was trying to invite people into a longer journey than like um, what I tend to do as a pastor. I'll admit is like somebody comes to me with a problem. I usually know a book that will answer that problem. And I'll, I'll kind of reference that. But what he was inviting his people into was like a longer thinking process. He was inviting them into a metaphor. He was inviting them into spending a longer time considering the problem that they had and spending time with a different part of their brain, the part that awakens imagination and metaphor and narrative. And I thought that's really beautiful. And it really challenged me as a pastor to think about the place of books and reading as beyond prescriptive utilitarian reading, but to look at reading as this lifelong journey that we sit under the Lord and and engage with kind of a longer sustained thinking process. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful uh, way of putting it. And I agree. I, I worry so much about biblical literacy in my congregation, all congregations. Yeah. I worry that <laughs> right now I can tell you the starting lineup and the batting averages for the St. Louis Cardinals. And I know a lot of men that can, <laughs> but how, how many of them have that? Well, it's almost fantasy football season, right? We can pour yep. over stats for fantasy football, but somehow we find the biblical text too boring or uninteresting or irrelevant to spend time with. And um, I do worry that we've we've sort of particularly as men, that's something I've written a lot about, you know, publishers will tell you men don't read, you know, men don't buy books that, um, that wow. it's becoming a real problem. Um, one of the other ones that you point out as a, a way to begin breaking the spell of ideology is the role of the church itself and the role of pastors within our lives. What What is the church's role when it comes to ideology? I think the church needs to be a place where number one, we as pastors and you alluded to this at the top that we ourselves take scripture's warning to not be taken captive by various philosophies. It grieves me seeing some churches that have fallen into ideological captivity and it's happened in the pulpit, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking fully 100% on the right and on the left. I have seen people buy wholesale churches, buying wholesale conservative ideologies and progressive ideologies that they sound like the progressive internet or they sound like the conservative internet. And it's number one, our job to be a faithful biblical witness. That does not mean we're playing both sides or anything like that. No, we are boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, which will offend ideologies of all sorts. It, you know, the gospel has offended every single culture it has dropped into just in different places. The place that it's going to offend modern Americans is in probably the sexual ethic, you know, that, that happens in, in today's world. It's probably going to happen in various forms of um, fighting for justice. Um, so those are going to offend the left and the right alike. Pastors, number one, first and foremost, we've got to be people that are thoughtful, slow, to be honest, like slow thinker, thinkers and careful consideration of what's happening and boldly knowing the gospel and what the gospel offers. I think the church can also be a beautiful space of disagreement and of helping people critically think. Um, I'm hosting a class right now. I'm going to teach tonight called Ask Anything. And you register for this class and it is literally that. As you register, give me a question that you want your pastors to think through. We'll 
take kind of the teaching team and we'll share a few thoughts on some things that we're thinking through and just provide responses for it. I think that we need to also recommend great books to our people. Putting books in the hands of our people is a really important thing. We need to resource them in a constantly information overload place. We actually need to be curators, you know, at some level, pastors. We need to be reading everything and helping people understand why we will not recommend certain books, but why we will recommend others. Another thing is just I think in properly interpreting scripture and community and leading small groups and helping people organize discipleship communities, some of the work I'm talking about gets done. For example, careful reading and prayerful consideration. One of the best things a human being can do in the 21st century is meet with a small group of people every week, open the Bible, read it out loud together, carefully consider what it's saying, and pray that the Holy Spirit would grant us understanding. Um, That practice will change your brain. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the way that you live. And I believe it will help you become a person of greater wisdom and humility, which is really, that is really my heart for this book. It's like, can I just have a small, I just want to be a small um, push for the church to help develop careful wisdom and humility. Those words are huge for me right now because I just, I want to be that kind of person. I think churches can provide environments where we disciple people to embody those two terms. Well, I promised some questions on writing. Uh, I know you take your writing seriously. You're a great writer. Um, I've noticed lately that books and writing themselves seem to have stumbled into ideology. It feels like if you go to the bookstore and you look, you know, a lot of the books that you pick up in some ways are just ideologies. You know, you read through them and yeah. sometimes they're they're boring, in fact, because they're so predictable in what they're going to say. You sort of know by who wrote it or who published it exactly what's going to be inside the book when you read the book. How as a writer do you avoid falling into ideology? You're dealing with ideas. You're trying to communicate ideas. You're trying to put things in writing that you know people are going to read without you there to articulate further or explain. Uh, And I think there's a real danger, especially in a world so much of writing is driven by publishing and what gets published Mm -hmm. is driven by the market. And I think it's never been easier to sort of fall into some of this ideology as a writer uh, just because, look, it's what's working. It's what's selling. It's what people are into. How as a writer have you tried to avoid that or at least been on a lookout for it in your own work? I think it's a great question because, um, again, I love your approach to this, Chase, because we're not, just like I was saying about pastors, we're not, we we don't get free passes on this. And writers definitely don't get free passes on this. I've had the same experience you've had of being in a bookstore and seeing the ideologies alive in a book where it's so predictable. Yeah, it's boring. You know, something that I think about though is like, I think it's kind of always been that way in the publishing era, you know, kind of since, um, you know, you look back through history, 1700s, 1800s, and you see some of the waves of Christian thinking, you do tend to see Christianity fall prey to various ideological movements. So in some ways I take solace in the fact that this is not new. However, um, I think we are more, I do agree with what you said in the sense that right now we are more susceptible to it. And I would say primarily we're more susceptible to it because the audience has never been uh, easier to reach than right now. You know, think about 200 years ago, if you published a book, that was a huge deal. That was the only way you could get your words out there. You know, if you published a book, you published in a magazine, you published in a newspaper. 
Well, now you can kind of build your own platform, you know, and you can do that through the internet. And because of that, I think the internet wants an algorithm that's rewarded. Okay, a good example. You've done probably more work on this, Chase, around masculinity and stuff, but like Jordan Peterson's an interesting case, you know? He's a person who really fits. I don't know why or how, but he seems to fit the internet like perfectly. Like he gives these sound bites that are connected to larger structures of ideas that people are very interested in. And he has really brazen rhetoric that people I think like to respond to. And so it can be very tempting, for example, for a, for a pastor to kind of think of himself as like, mm, I want to be like the Jordan Peterson of Christianity or something like that. You know, I want to kind of have the same bravado and I want to have the same kind of like technique that he uses to kind of, you know, platform my message. And you know what? That's probably coming. <laughs> Maybe it's already been here, but like that person is going to show up and be super popular. Uh, because that is the way the internet reward structure works. So I'm saying this as more of a diagnostic thing. I don't have much prescription other than like, I, I really do wrestle with this because one of the things I know, okay, I'm a pastor out here in California. I've been on the West coast most of my life. I will more likely, uh, here, here's just a window into maybe a prescription. I, I think that I will more, I am more likely to fall prey to progressive ideologies because I live in progressive cities and I serve mostly progressive people. So I have to think about that as a pastor and go, okay, I want to be biblically faithful. And man, the way the word of God is speaking, I know it's going to offend my progressive friends out here. I just, it, 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 there, there's no way about it. I cannot change the message I've received and I must give it. So knowing the context and knowing where we come from and knowing that we have certain proclivities that are going to lead towards, you know, like I said, I'm probably more likely just in my temperament and my background to fall prey to more progressive ideologies. So how am I combating that through scripture and reading and intellectual communities that I'm a part of and the scholarship work I'm doing? Man, I, I want to be aware of that so I can be kind of strongly you know, battling against that. But the reward structures as a writer are right before us to fall prey to those things. Cause you're right. The, the business side of things, um, and not all of it, there's tremendous publishers out there that are doing the, the real, real work that I'm talking about. And they're not rewarding, um, boring ideology, um, ideologically captive people. They're really bringing out great writers. So, um, I don't know. I feel like that was a bad answer, but man, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I feel it as well because, um, and it is, it's, it's as much the market as it is the publishers because people, yeah. people want to immediately know which ideology to place you in. Cause not only do we know, not only do we have a sense for our, our own ideology, but all the other opposing ideologies. And it's like when we meet someone or read something, we're immediately trying to figure out where, which set of ideas that fits into. Um, and I sense it with it's it's harder and harder to find places to write because just the fact that yeah. that outlet published it places yeah. you in people's minds. I, it's yeah. really been it's been a struggle with the the five masculine instincts because um, put it as crude as possible, people assume you're either Dumay or Driscoll, and they're trying to figure out where does the book fit right. And it's 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 as if people can't conceive of you trying to say something different. Um, wow. So it is really hard as a writer to particularly look if you're at the point of a Jordan Peterson level where you become your own thing, then mm. you can define it. But if you're, you know, I'm, I'm a small church pastor in a 
relatively small writer too. So, so trying to figure out how to, to earn that audience where people will listen for what it is versus what they assume it is, is a real challenge as a writer today. And I think the temptation is to just give the people what they want, right? Just put yourself in the ideology. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's editors, you know, that would be willing to do that because they know it's going to sell. You're making me think I recently wrote for Christianity Today, who I write for quite frequently and really enjoy. It was shocking, but not shocking to see some of the replies (laughs) about my article not be well, it wasn't shocking to have people not engage with the actual content that happens all over the internet, but a very common comment on that piece was just at Christianity Today. Like they, it wasn't even about my article. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about the content, which again is not surprising. But what was interesting was people like attacking Christianity Today as a publication, you know, about how they view that publication and the ways in which it has faltered. Now, they're not a perfect publication. I'll freely admit as somebody who writes for them. But it was just interesting that there was like this enemy and it wasn't me, the author of the piece. It was the the larger structure that people were mad at because it wasn't doing what they wanted it to do for them. Yeah, I've had the exact same experience. And I'm keenly aware that people read and choose not to read simply by who publishes as well. So that's true. Um, yeah. And then it puts, yeah, it's, it's a really challenging, I think probably a, a much larger conversation. But the other place I think I wanted to ask you about, because I think you can fall into the trap. I sort of leaned to that first question towards publishing. Uh, but I think it also happens just in your own thinking when you're trying to work on a hard problem. Um, when you sit down to write a book on ideology, uh, and as we've mentioned various names, you're doing hard reading, you're reading across different disciplines, but also across different perspectives. Uh, when you decide I'm going to tackle a book like a captive mind and write on I- uh, ideology, how do you go about working out those hard problems and ensuring, look, I think the tension is not just to replicate what's already been said or is expected to be said, but also not just to be novel for the sake of being novel. How do you actually get yourself to work on the problem itself? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I feel like writing for me is the process, right? So like there's that famous adage, I don't know who said it, but like you don't write what you know, you write to figure out what you know. I'm a, I'm a, that is helpful to me. I'm a verbal processor. So a lot does happen in conversations with people I trust but really the act of writing itself helps me kind of go, okay, how do I just, I, I'm also, I also really love revising. I, I, I think like if I could re revise my books over and over again, I, I would, I would love it. One of the reasons I never read my books once they're published is I, I just start seeing ways I'd rephrase it. Not necessarily errors. You know, I, I think a lot of this, everything I've published, I still stand by, but you know, just like prose and terminology and uh, word choice and grammar and stuff. I always want to kind of re revamp it a little bit. So I think the writing process itself helps me. And then, you know, um, I, I, I would say to those writing, even sermons, um, a huge practice for me is like spreading it to a community of trusted people. So in all the acknowledgements of every book I've written, you'll see, people that I've had read it over several times and catch things and push back. We have a practice at our church here. Every Thursday when we we preach, whoever's preaching uh, sits with four or five people of our teaching team and they hear the sermon on Thursday in kind of a rough draft format to just kind of 
push back on things and say, you know, I think this is, you know, your, your, th- this phrase didn't really work, or I don't know if this is a proper reading of that text. I mean, some serious and minor pushback is given in those meetings. I think providing for ourselves editors, I've learned I need editors. I, I've thought about self-publishing and, uh, I, I just, I, I don't think I'm a good writer without an editor or multiple editors. And so I do think like broadening our work, and helping like, uh, yeah, like having good conversations with people we trust, but also like doing that humble work of, Hey, before I give this to the publisher, I really want several people I respect a lot to read through it and provide comments on it. Dr. Gary Brashears is a mentor of mine. He was my professor at Western seminary. I send him pretty much everything I write and he is graciously, uh, push, pushes back and gives me ideas and, um, you know, marks it up with red. I, in some ways, haven't left seminary in that way. But I would say write to figure it out, write to see what you think, revise, and in the process of revision, let's bring it to community of people that we really trust, who we know love the Lord, and we know they're they're thinking through the scriptures with great humility. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going to provide you that feedback and it'll make your work better and less lazy and hopefully surprising. I mean, the, the, one of the big goals of my work is like, I, I want to write things that surprise people. I don't, I don't want to be predictable. I don't want to, like you said, have it pick up and go, mm, I know where this book is going. You know, I want it to be a little bit, um, adventurous in that way. And hopefully by more people being involved, they'll help me with that. Yeah, so much wisdom. I think uh, I think you describe it really well. And I think represented in this conversation, just the patience, the intentionality. Uh, I think people understand why our first conversation was so great. I think this one equally. Uh, the book we've been talking about, A Captive Mind, Christianity, Ideologies, and Staying Sane in a World Gone Mad. Chris, man, it really is a privilege. I think it's a really helpful book. And I appreciate so much just the hard work you're putting uh, into all the writing you're doing, I know more to come. Uh, best way for people to keep up with you, uh, maybe to, uh, as we're struggling to find places to put our writing out there, yeah. maybe maybe for them to just find it directly from you as well, too. Uh, best ways for people to keep up with what you're doing. Yes, I intermittently take breaks from social media, but I am engaged when I'm engaged on it. Twitter is at Chris Nye, my name, just one word. Same on Instagram, at Chris Nye. And then I have a website, chrisnye.co. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Really a privilege. And uh, pick up the book, A Captive Mind, and we'll be looking forward to more things to come as well. Thanks, Chase. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com. I've got a link to Chris's book there. So if you're interested, make sure and check it out. Also, you might consider picking up a copy of The Five Masculine Instincts. Uh, It's been doing really well. I'm thankful the book's been out for almost six months now. And uh, I've got a lot of churches and church groups that are reading it, men's groups that are coming together. And uh, one of the things I've been enjoying is joining some of them for Zooms, Q&As, maybe at the end of that group session. So if you're interested in something like that, feel free to reach out to me through the website. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.